What's up guys, my name is Christian, I'm here with Elijah, and we're going to be breaking down for you in our second episode of the season, really our first though, we're going to be breaking down the resolution as part of our two-part series. So really quickly, I'm going to read the resolution for those who aren't familiar with it, or maybe some of the parents who are listening because they want to know what on earth their kids are debating And then I'm going to read for you guys the STOA explanation. So this is sort of the founder's intent for what the resolution is from the people who wrote it themselves. It's really short, really sweet, really to the point. Uh, I'm going to read through that stuff. And then Elijah and I are going to kick it off with some interesting stuff that we hope will benefit you in your understanding of this topic. So jumping right in, I'm going to be starting with the resolution. But first, I have to bring you guys a quick word from our sponsor. Starting off, the resolution for this year is the United States federal government should substantially reform its banking, finance, and or monetary policy. And the STOA explanation or the sort of founder's intent, you might say, that was on their website reads, and I quote, Ever since the 2008 recession, banking, finance, and monetary policy have been hot topics. While STOA debaters have been able to debate fiscal and tax policies in the past, this is a completely different side of the money debate. The Federal Reserve, regulations on banks, the stock market, and housing loans are all areas students will get to explore. Not only will debaters dig deeper into understanding the causes of the 2008 recession, but they will also learn about the Great Depression, the basics of banking and investing, and will study economic concepts like inflation. Cases could range from repealing the Dodd-Frank Act, to winding down Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, to auditing the Fed, regulating cryptocurrencies, dealing with money laundering, and FDIC reform. Challenging? We think so. But don't worry. There are plenty of simple and accessible cases, too, like eliminating the penny. Okay, uh, people, uh, Elijah here. I have some some history we're going to jump into. Uh, yay. So I want to start off saying that this is part one um, in a two-part series. We'll have the second part coming out. I, I do not know when. Um, but this is going... This is uh, the... The purpose of these episodes is to give a little bit of history and background to our monetary system and our banking system. Um, This episode is really old history, so, I mean, it's useful to know, but it will not be, I'm just going to say this out loud, um, it will not be as important as episode two, because episode two, we start from 1913, and going on from there, we have the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, the 1930s crisis. Creation of the Federal Reserve. Creation of the Federal Reserve, exactly. And then the 2008 recession, which are uh, much more re- relevant to um, much more relevant to our debate year. So, um, to start off with monetary policy and banking policy, we're actually going to start with the Constitution of the United States of America. In fact, the Constitution does say in Article 1, Section 8, that Congress has the power to, quote, coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures, and to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. This is one of the earliest examples of monetary policy in the U.S. Additionally, the Constitution says that 
quote, no state shall coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Um, anybody interested in the gold standard could use that quote as um, an argument. It's a constitutionality quote. I, I find and, it and quite I'm going to jump in here and, and just drop a little interesting thing on this. I don't know the answer to this, but this is something that um, I think would be super interesting to look into is uh, when it says in that line, no state shall coin money emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debts. It would be interesting. It wouldn't be topical at all because this would be a state action, but uh, maybe even a, a non-topical counterplan. I don't know. If a state were to make their own coin, like a, a, I don't know, a California gold dollar or something like that, like that would be very interesting as a as a currency idea. Something I've never thought of until I read that. But anyway, I just want to interject that um, maybe yeah. some crazy counterplan people out there will take a hold of that and run with my counterplan dreams that i'll never do but anyway go ahead elijah now actually i believe in the constitution i don't have the exact quote on my hand but the printing and printing the printing of money or the coining there of money is exclusively given to the states and we'll get into that in just a moment um the reason this was that pre-constitution states issued their own currency causing chaos and confusion for across state trade so like south carolina would emit their own South Carolina dollar and so would Virginia and to use a different bill in another state you had to get it transferred um, that was of course very confusing giving the power of currency solely to the federal government helped to unite the unite the nation in one medium of exchange right and although there is some interesting history about the currencies pre-constitution during the Revolutionary War we're not going to go there because the majority of the relevant history happens post-Constitution. There's lots of stuff, but we're going to cover the more relevant stuff for the purposes of keeping this short, sweet, and to the point. Okay, exactly. Um, moving on from the late 18th century, we now enter into the 19th century. Uh, crazy how time works. In this time, we have such we have a very tumultuous banking landscape. Major bank problems happen during this time, such as the Panic of 1819, Panic of 1837, Panic of 1857, Panic of 1873, Panic of 1884, Panic of 1893, and finally, the Panic of 1896. Sufficient to say that's a lot of panics. Um, the causes of these panics are often attributed to reasons such as changes in prices of key goods. Uh, a lot of the time it was cotton and speculation. However, however, some have attributed these supposed causes as merely being symptoms of a larger problem. And we'll explain what a panic is uh, later in the episode. That's, a, that's a, exactly right, Elijah. Um, Lawrence W. Reed from the Ludwig uh, von Mises Institute uh, has written extensively, and we highly recommend that you go look at his article titled How Government Intervention Plagued Our 19th Century Economy. In this article, Reed argues that government is at sole fault for these panics. An example would be the Panic of 1819, where Reed cites a colleague of his who found that the Second Bank of the United States issued $23 million on a reserve of about $2.5 million. This greatly increased inflation and brought about the panic. Uh, Reed also goes through many other examples as to how the government plagued the economy, but ultimately that's going to be a really interesting thing moving forward, looking at how much of these crashes or panics were caused by the market just running uh, ashore or how much of it was actually due to the government meddling with things and messing it up in the first place 
Yeah, exactly. Um, th- those are definitely some good case ideas right there. Um, I'd say that if you want to, if you're interested in blaming government on everything, I highly recommend that article. I'm not saying that out of any political um, bias, but yeah, I mean, it's a really good article. I read it through and he presents very good um, supporting argumentation and he does throw in the gold standard there in lots of support for, for the gold standard when you're thinking about that. Another thing that should be noted is that during this period, the government operated several central banks. Founding father Alexander Hamilton was actually a big advocate of this type of system. The first bank of the United States existed from 1791 to 1811. It conducted the duties of acting as treasury for the federal government, issuing notes, and paying off war debts. The bank was technically a private corporation, although the government owned 20% of its stock, providing commercial loans to the people in the Union. In 1811, however, many did not see a good reason to keep the bank considering the war debt was paid off, so Congress voted to end its charter. Right. Uh, After the War of 1812 began to accumulate and state-chartered banks began to stop exchanging notes for reserves, Congress chartered a new bank, and this bank lasted from 1860 to 1836. The second bank, in addition to the duties of the first one, regulated the other banks from over-issuing notes. Knowing that such large, powerful institutions were susceptible to corruption, President Jackson essentially waged a political war against the central bank, causing its death in 1836. Uh, oops, <laughs> that's supposed to say 1863, I think? Yeah, 1863 is should be the right date. Um, from the we're end we're of looking the second- at some notes here in case y'all are uh, wondering, because yeah. this is lots of information for us to just have off the top of our head. So 1863 is when it uh, shut down the second bank, that is. Okay, moving on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, okay, that, that is the right date. 1863 is when it ended. So Perfect. from the end of the second bank until of the United States to 1863, a new type of free banking occurred. With little regulation, many banks opened their doors. These banks simply had to deposit reserves with a state auditor to print their own currencies. This resulted in hundreds, if not thousands, of different pop-up banks across the country. Right. Um, Often the validity of these so-called wildcat banks, named because often they were were so obscure, especially in the West, that only a wildcat could find them, um, notes were highly speculated since there were so many... The purchasing power of one note would decrease in perceived soundness and worth the farther away it was used from the bank that issued it. So, for example, if I had a note from San Francisco Bank and I took it to New York, uh, it would be viewed with a lot of speculation and probably not be worth as much um, as it says it is on paper. Whereas if I had it in San Francisco and they knew the bank was right across the street, then they would know that it's probably valid and they would probably honor that at the full face value. Even worse, like if you lived in the country, um, if you went to Herder's Bank of Illinois and you got out 10 bucks and then you rode the train over to see your family in New York, then they don't even know because that bank is probably so obscure. San Francisco is, I'm not sure what the size it was, but at least it was a city like the right. idea is that they don't. Maybe this isn't even a real bank. Maybe it doesn't even exist, or maybe it's having financial problems. Nobody actually knows anything. Exactly. They actually, yeah. 
Um, by the time of the Civil War, the need for government finance spurred the creation of another central bank. Banks at this time had the choice to make a charter with the federal government or the state governments. Banks that chartered with the federal government had to issue government printed notes, and those that chartered with the states could print their own. These notes were backed by bonds to help fund the war. Uh, that would be the federal federal um federal notes by 1865 taxes on state banks notes drove them out of business it drove all the state charter banks out of business creating for the first time in american history one uniform currency throughout the united states basically the national currency was all that was left right and if if, uh if i'm not mistaken this was actually during the civil war whenever um the, the government was doing this in order to try to get more money on the federal level because the federal government needed money. They didn't have a central bank because they had just shut it down two years prior. Um, so they started issuing what were called greenbacks. And they and they didn't abolish state notes, but they taxed them in such a way so that it essentially got rid of them. Um, and people started using a national standard currency that was uniform. And that way, the government managed to get more money and things just were able to move a little bit more smoothly uh, in, in the time of all the chaos of the Civil War. Exactly. Um, I will, a quick note before we move on. The greenbacks are actually something interesting if you want to go into inflationary uh, problems uh, or just research that because the Union actually did hyperinflate the value of the greenback to try to fund the war. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's just another example of overinflation of currencies. Right, and I, I will say it's uh, super cool if you look up uh, greenbacks online just to see what they look like. Um, they're actually quite literally green on the back, uh, which is why they got the name. And that's now what we refer to all dollars really as sometimes. Um, so that's just a neat little tidbit. But uh, anyway, after numerous bank runs and panics, um, about one every decade, uh, bankers in Congress got together in 1907 to work out a long-term solution uh, to the ever-present problem of so-called bank runs. Uh, yeah, I promised I would explain what a bank run is or bank panic. Um, a bank run is when too many people at one time go to get their money out of the bank. The bank may have lent it out or just not be holding enough in reserves in an area or at all. With the knowledge that their money couldn't be withdrawn, the public would panic and the people would attempt to pull their money from the banks en masse, making the problem bigger and systemic. Right. Um, now, this, this, a bank panic would be like a bank run. So they everybody tries to get their money out because there isn't, there's hardly any money left. We have examples of this, like same thing in stock market. Um, when like speculation crashes, everybody tries to get their money out before it all crashes, driving the price down and going through a cycle. Um, exactly. It's just kind of like um, in, in more... In, more older history you can see you know if you look up there's classic photos black and white photographs of on wall street people lined up um by the hundreds outside banks to get their money back or to sell their stock during the crash um if you look if you want to reference more modern history um history from my generation um and probably your generation if you're listening to this uh take greece as an example just a few years ago they were having a massive economic downturn uh they had to get bailed out by i think the imf uh, i don't remember exactly it was either the imf or the world bank um i think the eu helped them out some there but um people there were only allowed to withdraw i think like 50 dollars per day from their bank account Oof. because um the government was trying to prevent an all-out collapse of the entire banking system there 
um, that's how bad it got because so many people were scared that they were going to lose all their money. So uh, anyway, that that's what a bank run is. Um, continuing along this this line of thought here, in 1908, uh, the Aldrich Veland Act was created to help set up free credit and put more money in circulation in the short term. By 1913, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act into law, creating the system that we have today. Now, it should be noted that up to this point, the United States was largely using either gold or silver or a combination of the two to back up banknotes at this point in time. This will all change as we come near the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, Christian, you're exactly right. Um, Gold and silver had been the main uh, backing up uh, reserve specie that was used to hold notes like, um, when going back to the free banking, like wildcat bank period, you actually had to put either gold or silver with state auditors to get your own state charter banks or with the federal government. So to get your notes printed or to be able to print notes, you had to have this much gold or silver. Um, right. So now that we've gone over that, um, next time we're going to go over the modern period, which is from about 1913 to 2019 and that encompasses a lot more of relevant um, history thanks for tuning in and remember don't panic <laughs>